Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Arroya Office Hours. My name is Keisha, and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. We thank everybody in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroyo pricing, although you are always welcome to book a demo. Feel free to type any questions you have in the chat at any time, and if your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and ask away. Plus, as a special treat, we're sending an Arroyo hat to anyone who asked a question for the first time during today's live session. We are limiting that to U.S. residents only and one hat per household, but excited to talk to all you great growers out there. Jason and Seth, are you ready for our first question from Instagram? Yeah, thank you, Geisha. Yep, thanks. Awesome. Go Good to see you guys. Okay, we're just going to get right to it. Uh, this one is from NoNo559. They are new to crop steering, and they want to know for a first-timer, how would you recommend they get started? Uh, always get started checking your environment conditions. And I know that sounds a little funny because we say, hey, we're, we're really excited to jump into crop steering. Um, with the Royal system, we're always looking at that environment first before we really dig into how we're trying to manipulate our drybacks. Uh, so drybacks, just really transpiration, uh, making sure that our irrigation windows are appropriate for our plant size, for our substrate size, for the stage of growth for that plant. So go in, make sure your VPDs are where you want. Uh, during that that phase, make sure that uh, you're using a, a temperature that, that you're really trying to achieve. Look at your VPD and then modulate your humidity based on that target temperature. Obviously, sometimes we don't always have uh, full control over humidity. So maybe if we don't have a humidifier or we don't have enough HVAC capacity to dehumidify, we can modulate our temperature just a little bit to, to strive for the appropriate VPD. And that's the absolute first step because once we have that environment set up, then it's going to be way easier to do crop steering, the planning for crop steering. So if our plants aren't growing as optimally as they can because of the environment, we're always going to struggle to modulate crop steering. And if we, we take that a little bit farther, sometimes uh, clients are in greenhouses. Maybe they don't have enough supplemental capacity. Maybe they have no supplemental capacity at all for lighting. Uh, and that's also a scenario where it's going to be definitely trickier because your daily drybacks are not going to necessarily be projectable from the day before. You may need to modulate your irrigation schedule based on um, outside environmental factors. Yeah. I mean, I think you nailed it, Jason. Um, making sure your environment is capable or you have the control capabilities to modulate everything in your environment so that you can achieve those goals. Because if you don't have humidity control, you can't control your dryback or you won't dry back. You know, if you, if you hit week four and you're at 80% day and night, like you're, we're not going to be able to achieve much. That's a reality. And that's a sign of where you need to start putting your money and figuring out, you know, what's more important in this grow, because we can try to crop steer all we want, but if we don't have that environment and the capability to control it, we'll just never get there. So a couple other steps, um, when you begin crop steering one, try to have pretty good monitoring tools. So obviously we really like using Arroyo. And so in Arroyo, you've got a dry back calculator. So you don't have to go in there and do a, a calculation in your head. What you can do is use the, the zoom function and say uh, select dry back, basically go from your last irrigation to your first irrigation. It's gonna pop up each zone's dry back. You can log that as a manual reading so it's easy to reference later. Get used to you know checking out your data on a daily basis and just making sure that your your shot sizes are appropriate and your irrigation schedule or that irrigation window is shooting for the type of strategy that you're going for. So if you're a little bit more generative strategy, shorten that irrigation window up. If you need a more vegetative, go with a wider irrigation window. And uh, that's that's kind of the beginning of it. Obviously, if you are an Arroyo client, spend some time with our client success managers. Jump on a call with uh, Seth over here or, or get Noah on the line and kind of talk with, with them about what, uh, what parameters that you're operating on right now and some of the first steps to jump into crop steering. I always recommend that you kind of avoid 
manipulating too many variables at once. And so that's you know where we look at, hey, let's get the environment set up and then start working with uh, irrigation scheduling to hit the appropriate drybacks, get that EC stacking when we want it, drop it down based on some, some runoff numbers if we need to uh, encourage infrastructure in that plant, leave stock stems for vegetative growth or later in the cycle hit some, uh, hit some bulking. So once you've established those uh, reproductive sites, the buds, then uh, let's relax that substrate a little bit and get that plant to, to pop. Great. Back to basics, right? Um, our next question comes from the chemical grower. They want to know, is it possible to crop steer with bottom feeds? Uh, bottom feed, I'm guessing, is, I think we're probably talking about flood and drain. Yeah, or there's a, there's a few different bottom feed pots on the market, and it is possible, but it's not possible to be nearly as precise, is the way I would put that. We can, you know, narrow up irrigation times a little bit with that, but we just don't have quite as much control because we're, you know, relying on the media to wick that moisture up rather than dropping off a specified amount on top. So when we flood that flood and drain table, it's hard to meter even by, you know, the amount of time, how much water is actually going to get taken up. And so we've, we've got some clients that do uh, flood and drain fairly successfully using Arroyo for crop steering. Sometimes it'll be in a little bit smaller media uh, because they, they, when you are flooding, you know, you're getting to a super saturation point. And it's also a lot of flood tables on the market aren't necessarily set up to be six inches uh, deep when you flood. You want to, when, if you can flood, uh, the higher up on the block, the better. Because what is happening when we top irrigate uh, from a drip stake, for example, is one, we're actually pushing the old, um, maybe slightly imbalanced nutrient solution out of the bottom if we are doing some runoff. And even more importantly, we're, we're pulling oxygen through that substrate. So when that water comes down through the block, it's going to be actually creating a vacuum, which is pulling some from fresh air, some oxygen down into that root zone. And uh, anytime you know, that we see some roots that are a little bit brown or they're dying off on the edges, a lot of times that uh, is happening in an anaerobic substrate and so they need some oxygen to stay nice and, and white and achieve maximum growth a um, few things that are happening when we're working with flood and drain is use that that sensor uh, reading to kind of time out your flood events and so if you are crop steering in any scenario you're going to have multiple irrigation events per day and with flood and drain it's um, it's really critical that you're keeping an eye on those drybacks especially if you are in a smaller substrate and uh, it's going to be a little bit a little bit more fine tuning probably on making sure that you can uh, use that smaller substrate without, uh, without drying back way too far uh, when you're pushing for generative growth. Yeah. I mean, some of the best success I've seen with that, Jason has been smaller plants, smaller media, and not trying to overgrow your capabilities with that flood and drain system, just because you are limited on, you know, for instance, if I want to put on a 1% shot, that's going to be difficult. So my strategy changes a little bit. It's going to be harder to go vegetative. It's going to be way easier to go generative to an extent, right? Because also we have our midday dryouts. So yeah, it's just a little different, but it is totally possible. And you're just going to spend probably a little more time day to day dialing that irrigation in, as Jason was mentioning, watching your graphs and seeing when that happens, because it won't be quite as fast. Yeah. And another thing to kind of um, keep in mind is obviously when we are looking at those graphs, uh, after you begin draining, you're going to see a really steep slope from um, the the water basically running out through the, the bottom of the the block. And, and so it just takes kind of a little bit of training as far as getting used to those graphs and understanding, hey, this is when we're at field capacity rather than a super saturation and, and run your transpiration um, calculations off once that has happened rather than immediately when you begin flooding. Awesome. Great answers. Um, so we've got Jody on with us today who posted a question, some notes here. Jody, you want to unmute yourself and go ahead and speak to it? Sure, absolutely. Am I unmuted here? You are. We hear you. All right. So uh, last week you guys had a caller who had mentioned they were reducing the amount of 1400 in their Athena Proline uh, nutrient solution they were running. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think after the third or fourth week of flowers when they were doing it. And they've noted an improvement in the quality of their flower while also minimizing or maybe even eliminating the dark green leaves with uh, downward curled tips they've been experiencing. Mm -hmm. So my question is, I guess, uh, is this common practice? I see a lot of charts, at least from the nutrient manufacturers, where they're suggesting the same solution from week one through seven, mm -hmm. uh, which equates to maybe around 150 parts per million of nitrogen. So in my simplified view of things, and maybe it's wrong, um, I correlate nitrate or nitrite uptake uh, with transpiration. And if that is then the case, perhaps these charts are suggesting we kind of steer how the plants use the nutri uh, nutrients through VPD, PPFD, maybe even irrigation strategy. Am I onto something or am I kind of manufacturing my own answers? Uh, I mean a little bit. So as far as nitrogen is concerned, the reason we want to start dropping that after stretch is the plant needs nitrogen to build that framework and bulk out. But when we're talking about nitrogen, we also have to realize that it itself can be a plant growth regulator. So excess nitrogen late in the flower cycle is going to cause more vegetative growth. So we're going to see darker green leaves, bigger inner nodes, looser buds, um, and then eventually other toxicities because as the plant needs nitrogen, we're pushing that plant to grow vegetatively, has an antagonistic effect where everything else is now a limiting factor since we're having an overdrive at the wrong time. So that's why you typically want to, you know, lower your nitrogen after stretch going forward. And then, um, you know, the plants we can kind of push mainly through light intensity, how much nutrients they're going to uptake. But uh, we can only push the plants to a certain extent. They take up what they want given the environmental conditions and then everything drops out. So if we don't have enough light, we're only going to take up so much. If it's too cold, only going to take up so much. Yeah, and that's great to I mean, kind of answer the second part of your your uh, your question there. Um, adjusting or altering nutrient mix, um, maybe not on transpiration, uh, light intensities, VPDs, uh, but probably based on plant life cycle. So just kind of breaking that down more simple to what Seth was saying. Uh, one of the things that I, I think probably doesn't get said enough in the industry is, you know, check out uh, check out. Moodler's chart, uh, where you can see how those antagonistic effects of different nutrients can affect each other and uh, kind of simulate in your mind how those elements are affecting the plant growth. So it's a good way to just dig in, and it sounds like you're doing a good job trying to ask the right questions for how nutrition can affect plant growth. And um, there's a lot of science behind it as far as traditional agriculture goes, and, and most of those Practices can uh, can kind of be applied to cannabis. Uh, it, it obviously is a very hungry plant, and so we're operating on quite a bit higher nutrient levels than than most other crops. Um, so so kind of keep those things in mind. But uh, theory wise, uh, most most of those um, previous researches have uh, have been where we build our knowledge on uh, cannabis nutrition. Yeah, it's it's still just a plant. At the end of the day, you know, um, I always tell people if you can grow some killer tomatoes anytime, any place without splitting the ends, you could probably grow some killer cannabis as well. Jody, thank you so much for submitting that. Did, did you get your questions answered? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that adds a little bit of clarity. Um, I would ask one uh, other thing then if we are to be adjusting, you know, uh, basically the calcium nitrate we're adding to our solution based on the phase of growth, what do you think a, uh, an amount to adjust by would be? 20 parts per million, 30 parts per million, so I can know kind of how to adjust. Ooh, that's a tough one. Those small 20 parts per million adjustments are probably the way to go, gently. But um, a good way to look at it is just Honestly, looking at some of those different lines, like the different manufacturers do have different strategies about pushing nitrogen later on. And, uh, you know, some of that honestly is because just five years ago, it was a lot more difficult and expensive to be manufacturing and selling cannabis-specific nutrients. Now there's a lot more money behind it. We have a lot more complete nutrient lines. And 
less knowledge is generally required by the grower to be successful with these nutrient lines just because they can be cannabis specific. You know, less and less are we having to add CalMag or any other supplements like that um, just because, hey, we can do research on this now. <laughs> the companies can put out a product that the consumer actually wants. And that's really to all of our benefit, I think. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, guys. Betty, thank you so much for asking your question. Um, and to everyone who's on with us today, we love hearing from you live. So if you have any questions, feel free to type them in the chat at any time so we can choose you and you can ask the experts right away. Jody, make sure you stay on after the broadcast. We have something we want to send you. Thank you for participating. I have my next question here from Instagram. This one comes from the Garden Consultants. They want to know, what is the max water content for a Friday Hugo GR32? I soaked them, and some read 80%. What was that, a Friday? Friday. Friday Hugo, GR32. So a 6 by 6 by 6 Hugo, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, 80% is not surprising for a freshly charged block. Um, anywhere from 65 up to 85 on Rockwell when we're hydrating it is typical. It probably won't stay that high once you have a plant rooted into it. but. Um, Again, a lot of that comes back to every time you get new medium, it's a great practice to hydrate and test it and see what kind of water content you're working with. Because, uh, you know, in this world where manufacturers are scrambling to keep up with supply and demand, um, you know, there's variation in the product. So, like, if we're looking at cocoa, uh, even Rockwell is a lot more consistent. But you, you've got to remember, this is still made by people. It's, you know, still... A manufactured product there's variances in the machinery that make it so every time you get a new batch in and honestly every time you go to hydrate blocks and transplant it's best practice just to test that and see where you're at because whether you're at 65 or 80 that might you know affect how long we wait for you to dry back or the range of dry back we can work with but we need to establish that baseline so we can see what kind of parameters we're working inside yeah that that's exactly right and uh, one of the things I always try to reiterate with people is that exact numbers, not necessarily uh, a hu huge importance to, to be tracking. So, you know, don't, don't get caught up if that number is different from one run to the other. Um, and that's why your probably best option is to, to kind of test that and understand the uniformity across the sensors that you have installed um, each round and really pay attention to the trending. How, how are those plants grouping together? And over a time series, how are your drybacks, your irrigation events, compare one to another over, over those durations? Yep. We could take a lot of numbers off those graphs and still get a lot done. Would be a good way to put that. Excellent. All comes down to the data. All right. My next question comes from Bisco Paul. They want to know how important is runoff pH? It's pretty important. I mean, it's something that I take every day. And we talked about uh, this a little bit in last week's episode, uh, obviously pH being potential hydrogen. So measuring the ratio of positively charged ions to negatively charged ions in solution. Um, obviously, usually in something like rock wool, we want to be going in at that five, six range, um, something like cocoa, you might be up in, you know, five, nine, maybe six, oh. And so if our plant is feeding um, and it's eating up an imbalance of nutrients, we'll see that that pH rise or lower. And uh, that's a that's a good indicator that maybe you're not feeding enough um, or maybe there is, uh, you know, a better option for a new nutrition composition that you could be feeding. Yeah, I think you nailed it. When your pH starts to go off like that, it usually means the plant's preferentially taking up one thing and leaving another, and that's what we're balancing or fighting there with that. And I think the biggest thing is to look at, you know, if you can get a test on your water, see what kind of PPMs you're putting in of everything, and then, uh, you know, fight that initial reaction to go, all right, I'm watering at 5.8 or 5.7, and it came out at 5.2. I'm going to freak out and now start watering at 7-something. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Stay with where you're at and still read your plant. There are some plants that will run off at 5.2 and stay fine, and that's just because they're eating a lot of food. And that pH, the biggest factor it plays in the ranges we're talking about is plant nutrient availability. 
you're not going to, you know, if you stick your hand into something that's pH 4.8, it's not going to burn your skin off. It's not going to burn the plant roots off either. But the plants will not be able to take up almost any nutrients at that level. So that's the thing we're looking at. If you've got an imbalance there and an accumulation of the wrong salts, you're going to see that pH drop and a lot of it will go back to nutrient composition and maybe some strains that don't work with the same nutrient lines that your other ones do. Yeah, and so anybody that's watching this, um, if, if you haven't been looking up nutrient solubility charts in regards to pH, jump on Google. Um, there's lots of them. There's very many that are substrate specific. That's going to be super important um, for understanding, hey, where is the right pH for me to feed at depending on my substrate type. So obviously if we're going into organics, our pH needs to be a little bit higher for the right amount of nutrient availability. And uh, kind of another advanced topic on this that uh, you know I encourage people to think about is modulating that pH just slightly throughout the plant life cycle to provide the a little bit more solubility um, at different points in the, in the life cycle. So we were talking about you know decreasing some of the nitrogen later on. Uh, you know, we could step up that pH maybe a, a 0.1 or a 0.2 towards the end of the cycle to actually reduce the new, um, nitrogen uptake simply based on um, those plant parameters. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great way to uh, kind of deal with, you know, a single nutrient solution, let's say, going all the way through. That makes, and that's part of why they're manufactured that way. That makes it easier for the grower. It's less variables that you have to manipulate. And, uh, yeah. Just trying to make your lives easier, growers, all yep. about it. On the subject of pH, I have another question on this topic. This comes from Gabo TRXP. Apologies if I got your handle wrong. Um, but they are asking, how do you balance pH when runoff pH differs from the input? How much is a normal upward? You know, that is a question. I, I usually, if I'm seeing, say, more than, say, and then rock wolves, if I'm seeing above 6.3, 6.4, then I'll start to get concerned. Um, you know, definitely check out the the stems and leaves. Uh, are they showing a, a little bit of coloration that uh, could indicate nutrient issues? Um, and obviously, the absolute ideal way to identify any nutrient imbalances is shipping in a, a leaf tissue sample analysis. Um, send it into the lab. They'll break it down and um, it's going to give you a more comprehensive understanding of what nutrient issues that plant is running into. Yeah, that's the only way you're going to get really far with that, honestly, because the, the reaction time and, you know, the results that you see on making a nutrient change aren't, you know, observational science on that level is very tough. It's not going to work out. If you've burned a plant or given a plant a deficiency in that life cycle, you're not, you know, in that specific flower cycle, you're never going to correct that. You might fix that imbalance and the plant's healthier from there on forward, but, you know, those leaves that are burnt are never going to turn green again. So really it's just, you know, trying to parse that apart and not just take guesses at it. And as we're always saying, that the better you can document this stuff, the better it is for continuous improvement. You know, when you get that leaf uh, tissue sample analysis back, you know, take a snapshot of it. If they send it to you in PDF, upload it to your harvest group uh, as a note. And so, you know, you see similar results again, go back into the other harvest group and say, okay, well, here's what, um, here's what our tissue sample said about that growth cycle. Uh, we modulated something. Is this one fix it? Did it get worse? Uh, how can we compare from the results? Yeah. And a picture really is worth a thousand words. <laughs> Once you grow the same, a lot of you guys know this, you grow the same strain 20, 30 times and you go, oh yeah, I remember that one time that weird thing happened. Well, if you don't have it documented really well, it gets, I mean, we're, we're all super busy. It's hard to go back and find that and then really nail it down, you know, because some of these problems too, you might inadvertently have them pop up here and there, but they don't happen every run. And that's when it gets really difficult to go back. You're like, well, I think we did this. Like, no, let's go look at it. We'll see pictures of what the plants looked like when we tried that. Um, we won't just kind of toss it up and go, hmm, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's try it. Great. Um, our community submitted a few EC questions, so I'm going to get into those next. Just a reminder to everybody who's on with us today, if you have any questions, please type it into the chat so we can get you 
a chance to uh, ask it live. So Lonely Bones asks, why stack versus increase EC in solution in beginning of flower? Stack versus increase. So when we're stacking, we are increasing. Um, I think stacking refers to the way that we step that up through different irrigations. Um, I don't know. Your thoughts on that? I think. Um, just to are, are you talking about feed EC, I guess? Yeah, that's what, what I was going to dig yeah. into. Is, you know, All right, yeah, we can go into that. A lot of times, you know, we typically feed at about the same feed irrigation for most of the flower cycle. Maybe towards the, the end ripening, we'll, we'll drop it down a ways. But um, the nice thing there is, you know, if you've got lots of different rooms on one dosatron setup or one, you know, um, fertigation skid, you know, you can all be going in at 3.0 or, or whatever your specific um, ideal feed EC is. And simply by modulating your irrigation volumes and your irrigation windows, you can kind of change how much runoff you get. And that's the our favorite way to uh, modulate substrate EC. And it's kind of one of the reasons that the Arroyo system has been so very effective with crop steering is be, because you can kind of step it up just based on decreasing your runoff, running only P1 events and um, pushing a nice generative pressure onto those plants, letting that EC rise up for the right duration uh, based on that strain and, and your um, your planting cycle. And, uh, and then you don't even have to necessarily change your input feed and you can drop that back down simply by opening it up that irrigation window and possibly pushing a little bit more runoff. Yeah. Honestly, save money and time and sanity. If you're chasing your feed EC around, um, you're, you're really varying a lot. And, you know, if you're first trying this out and you've got, let's say, just a hose and you're pouring nutrient solution on and you're really flushing it basically every day, your root zone pH is going to be close to what that feed pH is. And that's where a lot of that theory traditionally comes from. If you can keep it at that 3.0 to 3.5, what we like to run, as Jason was saying, you can modulate that and if I'm mixing up 3.0 versus 6.0, I'm saving a lot of money that day. And then I project that across an entire growth cycle. Suddenly it's a lot more economic to be able to modulate my root zone pH via runoff modulation. Are you talking pH or EC? EC. I'm sorry. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Just, I, 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 I don't want to get it. people running 3.0 no, pH. That might, uh, no, don't might get that. a little rough. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, that's another way to think about it, too, is just economics. Like, do you want to mix up that much nutrients, or is there a better way to do it that's going to save you money? And kind of to reiterate some of what he was saying as far as you know, chasing your, your feed EC around as far as you know, going on a complex um, feeding chart, anytime that we in, introduce more complexity into these cycles, the more chances of mistakes being made. Um, so, you know, if, if you are every, you know, two or three days doing something to your FDC, there's way more likelihood that you're going to go into a, a mixing issue um, simply because you're doing something different every day um, and or you're changing the parameters on your skid um, probably more often than you actually need to. So reduce some of that complexity, reduce your labor, increase some of the reliability going in. Yep, absolutely. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Yep. I've got another EC question. I think you guys touched on this a little bit in your answer, but um, Isaac209 wants to know, when stacking EC, what is the highest you want your EC readings in the media? So a couple of things, uh, and this is why time series data is so very valuable, is uh, when we are stacking, we're going to see a pretty significant rise in EC from when we do irrigate to the end of the day or the next morning before we irrigate again. Um, as far as what's the highest, uh, I don't get too scared if my peak before irrigation is up in that 15, maybe a little bit higher. Um, as far as you know, where it's coming back down to when you irrigate, that's where you can use the Arroyo uh, Crop Steering Quick Start Guide to kind of judge where you should be at depending on um, time frame, substrate type. Uh, lighting type is also going to be one there that we want to consider. Yeah. As far as max EC goes, um, you would looking around, I've been completely surprised sometimes at looking at how high people are running, but also 
one thing to remember is that difference between that EC or that difference in the EC swing between say 25% water content and 20 or 21 can be huge. It's that line is very much exponential and not, not linear. So you could be maxing out at 15 all along and then, wow, your plants are taking up just a little more water. Suddenly you wake up one morning and go, wow, it hit 21, but that's not necessarily um, a horrible condition. It just means we might want to address that severe dryback and run a little runoff, get right back in line. Um, it's a highly, highly strain-dependent thing, I've noticed, like more so than I ever would have thought of before being able to view a lot of this data. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Okay. Um, that's kind of where you want to keep an eye out, document things as best as you can. If you got a heavy feeder, let it eat. Mm-hmm. And remember, too, eventually once you start compiling this, there's going to be strains that you cannot run together for that reason. Their nutri- nutritional needs are just far too different. You know, I've run some light feeders that if I give them not any amount of nitrogen, but anything that seems like I'm trying to push it, they just get huge and stretch like crazy. And I can't run those with something that's like a squatted heavy feeder. It just isn't going to work ever. Yeah, great. Um, I have another question here from Instagram, but just a reminder, we had a couple people just joining us. Welcome. If you have any questions, please type them in the chat. We would love to answer them for you live. Um, this one comes from Northern Grown Trees, and they're asking, what's the optimal EC of my medium while in veg? Now, they did not say which medium they're using. Gotcha. Um, typically, whether I'm in Rockwell or Cocoa, I want my average in media EC to be about four by the time I hit flower. So in veg, oftentimes our challenge is getting from that, you know, maybe we're feeding a 2.0 or somewhere down even by a 1.8. We want to be able to stack it in veg, which can be tough when we're applying vegetative steering because it's can be tricky in a small substrate, especially to back off our water content and then apply those vegetative cues all day without pushing more runoff. Um, so I like to say four is a good goal. That's not a uniform rule, but that's usually a good goal to start with hitting by the time you get into flower. Typically, it's going to start at whatever you charge your block or your media with, and you're going to go from there. Um, avoiding too high of EC in veg, though, is pretty ideal because that means they're not getting enough water, generally speaking. Yeah, and this is, you know, again, where we always want to have people consider that when we make these recommendations, um, it's just trying to get a, a general good starting point with the information that we've given. So, you know, there's a ton of other variables that um, our agronomic advisors talk to you about when we ask a question like that uh, or we answer a question like that in, in our one-to-one um, training sessions with clients. And so that, that kind of gives us a lot bigger pack picture. Um, and I, I do reiterate, you know, that it's, Substrate size is one of those that's probably at the very top of this list. When we think about uh, nutrient concentration, we also want to think about the total amount of nutrients available to a plant. So if we're in a really large substrate, um, sometimes that nutrient content needs to be a little bit bit lower uh, simply because there's so much more volume that the plant has access to a lot more bulk amount of nutrient. So anytime that we have... um, you know, more solution. So let's say I put 10 grams of salt in a gallon of water. Well, if I put 10 grams of salt in half gallon of water, there's the same amount of nutrients available in that volume. It's just that the half gallon is going to be twice the concentration. And EC is a, is a concentration of nutrients. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. All right. So continuing the conversation, now we're moving into irrigation. Brad A85 asks, does the irrigation matter if the environment can't be controlled to that detail? How much time do you spend walking around every morning? Because even if you can, even if you don't have perfect environmental control, personally, um, I, I spend enough time hand watering to say that irrigation is worth it no matter what. But if you can't get a handle on your humidity, VPD, temperature, um, depending on which way that handle swings, <laughs> that you can't get a hold of it, you're either going to mold out your crop or suffer some pretty reduced yields compared to what you could be doing. Yeah, I mean, you, you and I both know 
um, on more home grow type situations or even in facilities where there hasn't been enough infrastructure investment, um, environmental challenges are really, they're a real thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. when it kind of goes to the point where um, how much time and energy you have into um, growing those crops and then how much do you want to invest in making that as effective as possible. Um, so just kind of think in your mind about the, the ROI on improving the equipment needed for a, an environment that is tight. Yep. Even from the standpoint of looking at a cost-benefit analysis saying, okay, this irrigation system may not necessarily improve my yields immediately, but now I don't have to pay someone or pay myself four hours a day to walk around and water. That, that can be huge. And at the same time, it's just collect as much data as you can to do those cost-benefit analysis. You know, if you don't have enough data, all you can say is, well, I got one and a half pounds per light. Um, why? Okay, why? Well, we have to quantify every part of that to make an effective cost-benefit analysis. Again, if you don't, if you think the irrigation is going to solve everything, but you can't control your VPD, you might be better off spending money on dehumidifiers or HVAC of some sort to get your VPD under control so you can utilize that irrigation system. Great. Excellent. This is so educational for me. (laughs) All right. My next question comes from Midwest Cultivators, and they want to know which parts of bloom are you generative steering? And then they ask the same question for vegetative. Vegetative steering. It's a hard word to say. So which parts of bloom are you uh, generative steering and vegetative steering? So um, we hit this one probably three or four times in previous office hours. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'm not going to dig too deep in here. Uh, we did talk about it last week as well. Uh, usually it's going to be very strain dependent. Uh, it's going to be slightly dependent on how long you're actually running that cycle. So on a, a one end of the spectrum, maybe we're crop steering some Mac one, uh, you know, very stocky, uh, stubby type of plant. Genetically, it's already uh, leaning more generatively in its growth. And so, you know, we may have just a few days, maybe maybe a week and a half max of generative steering in that. And w- our favorite way to do generative steering in bloom would be after the plants have rooted into their final um, substrate volume. So if you have rooted in uh, to your final substrate in um, in your 18.6 vegging cycle, then you can go generative right when you flip to 12.12. Uh, if you transplant at the same time that you flip to 12.12, then you probably want to make sure that those plants are, are well rooted in uh, before you do start generative steering. So that ideally is going to be around that, say, seven-day, uh, maybe 10-day mark if you don't have plants that are, that are raging yet. Um, so on the other side of that spectrum, uh, for maybe something like a Blue Dream, a tall, stretchy plant, um, then you know that plant might actually have a longer cycle, and we're going to need to definitely cue it to stay tight, internal spacing tight, and run some generative for maybe four weeks, um, five weeks, three weeks. Uh, again, there's you know so many factors in there that the best way you can determine that time frame is tracking your plant heights. So go in there and take a plant height measurement on the plants that have sensors, get that into the Arroyo system. It's going to log it to your harvest group database. And when you go back and look at it, you can say, hey, you know, we, we didn't necessarily push generative long enough for this plant because when we switched back to bulking, uh, we saw our internal splicing and plant height um, shoot back up a little bit. Uh, had a client and, you know, working with a new strain, went to uh, went to bulking a little bit early and, and saw a pretty significant increase in plant height just simply by switching those irrigation parameters. So log it per strain. Um and, and just kind of set up your harvest groups to help you. That's one of the reasons that we do uh, recipes. The recipe is just a grow cycle template. Build out uh, different recipes for your different strain types, and this will help your team kind of stay on the right target parameters uh, for both environment and irrigation. And then when you need to, build another recipe, slightly modulate it, uh, and or stick with uh, stick with what worked very well. So that's a great way to, understand cycle to cycle here's the changes that we intended to make here's some changes that 
we may not have intended to make. Um, and hopefully those show up as alerts uh, if you've got your uh, your system set up well. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things is just getting that data. So measure your plants, take a lot of pictures. Um, and then one of the big things is, you know, you've got your standard recipe that you're working off of, hopefully. Go into your harvest group and change that every time you deviate from that. So if you had a run with a new strain and you said, all right, we normally do our second D-leaf at day 21, but going back to the MAC, let's say, we might do that a little earlier because it's squatty. Um, and we generally tread for that second D-leaf at, at least for me, towards the end of stretch. So in that case, you know, we're going to make a change and we want to track everything and keep it all in one place. So part of that's just being diligent about getting that data in there and then saying, okay, yeah, we waited. We vegged a day longer. We vegged two days shorter this time. We were in generative a week longer with this strain. Really start to get that strain-specific data in there so you can build on your own knowledge base and also know how those strains are performing in your exact system because... Even if someone gave you a perfect recipe and said, all right, here is your VPD you're going to run, your nutrition, your temperature, everything. Sometimes replicating that isn't really that cut and dry due to different variables between rooms. Um, it might not be something that you thought would be a big issue, but sometimes it can be. So it's more about, you know, getting the data and making sure you have the tools to make these calls. I always like to kind of think about three steps to, you know, documentation. Uh, complete documentation is going to have an outlined plan. That's going to be what helps you uh, go forward and operate as a company. It's going to be what helps your team do the things that uh, are indicated by a cultivation director. Um, and then the next observation step would be application. So did we do exactly what was planned? Did we modify? Um, did we modify that plan a little bit while we're running based on some uh, some intentional implementations, and then the the last step would be uh, an observation of what actually happened. So you know, an outcome. If we uh, plan to do this, we applied that. Then what uh, what was our outcome there? And you know, I guess it doesn't deviate much from the scientific method, where um, all three of those the better they're they're documented, the easier it is to to do it next time. I love it. That's excellent advice. Um, well, we're rounding out the hour here. We have a few more questions submitted from our Instagram community. Just want to remind the folks who are online with us today, please submit your questions in the chat if you have anything you want to know about. Love to get to those today. Um, Northeast Labs uh, is asking, do you want to maintain full WC all day and just see your veg or gen dry back at night only? No. No. Not at all. So keeping that WC, like water content up during the day um, is definitely more of a vegetative cue, but part of that is those repeated irrigations. If we're going generative, we want to have that short irrigation window, long dry back. There it is. Excellent. Okay. I got another question here. This is from Ketchit Jan. I know I got that wrong. Uh, apologies. What is the driest percentage you want your water content level in rock wool before dark period in flower? So let's just abstract the before the dark period in there. Um, obviously, it's going to depend on your transpiration rate and your substrate size uh, going into the dark period. So let's we'll just take that part out for rock wool. You know, we usually don't at the very lowest want to see anything lower than 35%. So um, as, as a target, uh, I, I never want to be lower than 40% just to give me a little bit of buffer um, there. And so, you know, usually, yeah, let's say before the next day's irrigation, if we're at 45%, say we're running slabs, if we went from, a, you know, a 70% to a 45%, that's a pretty generative uh, dryback. Mm -hmm. um, and so if the best thing you can do if you're going into overnight is, Look at the last day's um, nighttime transpiration. Use that calculation and apply it to the same day. So mm -hmm. um, that type of time series data makes it much easier to, to answer those kind of questions on where do we want to be at a specific time um, throughout each, uh, each day cycle. Yeah, and it's important to be able to look and see overnight what your room's doing. You know, you can plan for a dry back, but if suddenly we've got humidity issues, well, it changes everything. 
or, you know, if we've been hoping for a 10% dry back and all we've been able to achieve is an eight because of overnight humidity conditions, um, that's, that's a hundred percent a factor in there. So there is no rule. The biggest thing to look at is where are you at before your first irrigation in the morning? You know, about two hours after lights on, where are you at? Have you dried down too far? Because we really don't want to be applying irrigations until either the end of our generative irrigation or the end of our P2s in vegetative. We don't want to apply anything overnight or anything before we want to in the morning. So that's what's more important for sure than the end of the day water content. Excellent. This has been such a great conversation. Um, I have one last question from our Instagram community. So to the folks online, so a few minutes to answer your questions if you have anything after this one. Um, but Andrew Garcia4 asks, what is the last week flush taper irrigation strategy? So um, again, I personally really like to avoid the terminology flush uh, simply because there's some undefined connotation historically in the industry on, on what that means. And, and so many times when people uh, say flush, they're talking about straight RO water. Um, in mm -hmm. today's hydroponic medias, uh, we don't necessarily recommend ever going to straight RO. And so I, I do like the fact that he mentioned temp uh, tapering that in there. I like to refer to the period as ripening. So um, that ripening is basically the goal. How do you get to that goal? You can drop your EC, uh, your feed EC a little bit. And the best part there is keeping in mind the, um, the amount of EC rise. So when we do that uh, ripening, usually it's going to be a little bit more generative um, type of application. And so on your day-to-day, -day, those plants are usually going to have really large drybacks, and that EC is going to go up drastically. So, you know, possibly just before we're going into ripening, if we're running a, a vegetative irrigation strategy, we'll see nominal ECs um, during irrigation in the substrate and say maybe five or six. Um, now, when we go into ripening, we could drop our feed EC down to, you know, 75% or, or maybe down to 50%, depending on, on how long you plan to ripen. Um, we're going to see those nominal ECs drop a little bit, but we're also going to see the EC spikes be substantially higher than they were in veg simply to the, due to those dryback numbers. So, um, you know, kind of keep that in mind that, hey, we can save a little bit of nutri um, nutrient. We can kind of help make sure that plant finish is real clean. And uh, also, I mean, one of the most important things there is not going straight to RO, um, as especially in something like rock wool, that, uh, that can be a, a significant change in what the plant is used to and uh, it can cause some you know some cellular issues um, and, and cause some necrosis in those bud sites and, and that's the absolute worst time to to be withholding what the plant needs to uh, to get ready for chop yeah so to build on that um, as Jason was saying we don't we really don't want to starve that plant out at the end we don't want to cause you know anything and one thing to remember is you've spent two months two to three months building it up in this saltwater environment. So the plant's been storing sugar in its roots to deal with that osmotic pressure and still be able to pull things through. So changing it right away is not good. Um, one thing you can do, you know, towards the end there is kind of taper down your EC, you know, pull it back, say from a three to a 2.1 EC at a day at a time, you know, don't do anything too crazy. But as, as you do that, you know, I think the, the biggest connotation I've learned from flushing is not only going to straight RO, but physically flushing things through the median. And that's not what we want to do. We don't want to drop all the EC out of the pot right now. And a big part of that is for post-harvest. You know, if you take a physically weak plant into the dry room, it has a better chance of molding, just like it did before you cut it down. Weak plants are more susceptible. So we want that plant to go in as healthy as possible and not have any osmotic shock issues or anything like that. Wonderful. That was my last question from Instagram. Looks like our online community is pretty satisfied. Um, Jason and Seth, thank you again for such another great conversation. And on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, wait a minute. We've got somebody raising a hand. Raul, go for it. What's your question? Can you unmute yourself? If not, you're welcome to type your question into the chat. Yeah, I just bought me the the Solus, and I'm running in the, the six-inch half-gallon 
floor flex pro pots what would be the best way to attach that to the uh the solace to the pot because it's a hard plastic on the side so if i mean if it's a round pot it's a round hard plastic um definitely try and cut slot in there so if we've got a round pot we'll want a horizontally cut spot and uh, we're going to make sure that that's at the right height in in relationship to the installation tool and one of the things that we're really trying to do there is make sure that the three prongs are as flush with the substrate as possible and so if it's a square hard pot sometimes you can get away with just pre-drilling some holes don't stick the drill bit like all the way into the soil though just drill through the plastic itself only and then insert the tool um or the uh the sensor excuse me and those prongs if they're exposed to uh any air they're not going to read as accurately as they could um they're very accurate in wherever they are so if they're in air then they're going to be reading more air and we're trying to sample the substrate so we want to make sure that uh the continuity between those prongs and the substrate is as best as possible. Yes, yeah, so some of the best success I've had with those plastic pots and talking to people. Cut that little little panel out before you fill your pot up, slap some tape over it, pot your plant up, pull that tape off, stick your sensor in, and then if you're going to do that to all your pots, do it before you start the run. Uh, one thing that's going to be helpful with that solace, depending on how your benches are set up, might be to leave it in one pot and go turn it on periodically and get your reading so that it's uh, the most accurate. Basically, you know, when those probes are in there throughout the cycle, that plant is basically going to root around them. So every time we reinsert that, that's introducing variability to the equation. Um, we just kind of want to reduce any of that potential variability due to just installation and run it in one pot, ideally. Royal, did that answer your question? Yep, that answered my question. Yes, yeah, my first time trying crop steering, so I've been watching all you guys' videos and stuff. You guys got great information. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah, we appreciate nice. you. We're here for you. Awesome. Uh, well, Roel and Jody, please stick around for a little bit longer if you don't mind. And again, Jason and Seth, thank you for another fantastic conversation. Um, thanks to everyone who joined us for Office Hours this week. If you have any questions about Arroyo or how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process or any other topic you'd like to talk about in a future Office Hours, please feel free to post it in the chat. Send us an email at support.arroyo.metergroup.com or send us a DM on Instagram. We definitely want to hear from you. Um, we record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's conversation. And then it will also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. So like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, we would love for you to spread the word. Um, but we look forward to seeing you next time. So thank you all so much for coming and happy St. Patrick's Day. Have a great day, everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks, Keisha. Thank you, guys. Good to see you. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.